0: I I just happen, while I'm reading Abrams and while I'm reading Young, I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my children. Uh, Right? And Chronicles of Narnia is about these traumatized kids in uh, London from around the period of World War II who go out into the country and they escape into this magical world where Jesus is right there. This is the world where Jesus is present for you and is going to save your butt. right? Right, right, right. But that world is filled with satyrs and fauns and talking animals and naiads and dryads. The spirit of the forest, the spirit of the animals, the spirit of the trees is all present. And not only that, the capacity of mankind to become blind to those spirits is a central point in the story. And the magician's yeah. nephew, right? Uncle Andrew, right? cannot hear Aslan speak because he treats him as a dumb beast. And as we're going into Prince Caspian, the, the Telmarines have taken over the land and they've turned most of the animals into dumb beasts because they no longer listen to them. So, so there's, this, there's something in Lewis where he's saying, he's this great apologist for Christianity, right? And he wants to bring us back to Christianity. But in this children's story that he tells, he unites his Christianity with a return to animism. Yes, very much. And that's very outside of the main line of Christianity. I mean, this was part of the
1: Nietzschean critique. When you split things like that, right? And then you say, and then what happens is this world is now, the natural world becomes completely equated with the fallen world. And it, it, it has no value in and of itself. It only has a value as a way of getting you to this world. And then what the problem that you then face is if you start to really realize that this world is inaccessible to you, and maybe it doesn't even exist. Then you're left with this, but this is the world that you've thrown that has been. This is the the world that you've thrown away, right? Um, and uh, and so that's. I mean, I think there's deep connection, uh, as Nietzsche articulates, between that separation and the rise of nihilism. Uh, Lewis is pointing. He's trying to do a couple things. He's trying to revivify the Neoplatonism within Christianity uh, to give us basically a scaffolding for the cultivation of wisdom because the scientific worldview isn't doing that for you. So you need, he wants to rebuild, because what the professor's talking about at the end there, now that he's not talking about knowledge, he's talking about a lack of wisdom. He's talking about foolishness, right? Yeah. So he's trying to revivify the Neoplatonism to say, no, no, we need to get, we need, a, we, need, we need a scaffolding for wisdom. And then, like you said, I, I think he is trying, uh, in connection with that, to, you know, bring back, The well, I'll put it this way the spirit of nature, the way you're talking about it here.
0: Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength conditioning, and everything in between. So, if you're interested in movement, Please stick around, and if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener-supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show, so what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support, so please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey, guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. So this week, our guest once again is John Verbake. John is one of my great friends and mentors in many of the things that I'm thinking about these days. And we have a conversation about once a month where we kind of dig deep into this stuff. Sometimes that just happens between us. but Sometimes I record it because I feel like it's going to be worth sharing with you guys. And this is one of those cases. So I had a series of insights while meditating about the connection between some of the ideas that I was reading in David Abrams' book, The Spell of the Sensuous, with ideas from John Young's book, What the Robin Knows, and uh, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, and how all this connected to some of the ideas I had learned from Jordan Peterson. And all of that, of course, is very very tightly interwoven with John's work. Uh, So this is a very interesting conversation where we go deep into those insights, and then we get into some of John's critiques of Jordan Peterson's work, and postmodernism and my own take on those things and, and how we see those things. So it's, it's quite a wide ranging conversation. And I think it's a very insightful conversation. Um, I got a ton out of it. It's part of this kind of ongoing dialogue that I'm having with John and John's having with other people. So I think you guys will get a lot out of it. Now, you may have noticed that we haven't had a lot of podcast episodes in the last couple of weeks. Um, and the reason for that is that essentially we are putting the podcast on hiatus for a little bit. And by hiatus, I mean, we're just not going to prioritize it, because what we're doing is we are going to be creating an embodied movement online summit. So we're going to have approximately 25 teachers getting together July 16th through the 20th for a free online um, summit to present a kind of coherent view of how we can build a practice that's optimally meaningful so we can sustain physical practice throughout our lives and cultivate ourselves through those physical practices. So we're gonna be looking at how movement connects to mindfulness, to nature connection, and to um, community, as well as how we can just address movement itself. So we've got some amazing speakers. We have Nick uh, Winkleman, who's gonna be on the podcast next week. We have Perry Nicholson, who's been on the podcast recently. We've got um, Frank Forensic, who's an amazing guest we've had on here before. Um, We have a lot more coming, we've got, Uh, just an amazing group coming together and we're really excited to share that with you. So, you know, lock that in on your calendars, get ready. It's going to be free uh, for you to come in and check it out, get yourself registered. We'll have that up very soon on our website, if not already when this is live and that'll be linked in the show notes if it is live. Um, So yeah, very excited about that. While that's going on, we're going to have to deprioritize the podcast. So we've got this one, we've got uh, Winkleman coming out, we may have a few more coming out in between now and that time period, but we'll see what happens. We're not going to be recording those for a little bit while we focus on this. Now, this podcast is something that I'm getting so much out of. I'm getting to have conversations with people who are just incredible, and I'm really excited about it, and we're feeling uh, such, we're getting so much amazing feedback from the people who listen to the podcast about what they're getting out of it, but we're not getting yet is a ton of support. And since this is a listener-supported podcast, we could really use that. Um, it, is, it does take a lot of our time uh, to get it edited. It takes a lot of our time to, to, for me to do research and make sure that I'm prepared to talk to all these speakers and be in a, the right place to get you guys the best experience while listening to the podcast. So if you consider supporting us on Patreon, that'd be a big help right now as we prep for this summit. And as we prepare for the next full season of the podcast, we're gonna go deeper in getting a more professional setup, and booking out guests further in advance in bulking our podcast so we really have a lot for you so we're really excited about where this podcast is going, how we can foster f- further communications our further um, uh, community around it. So if you're really into the podcast you know drop us a comment let us know what you're doing and certainly think about supporting us without further ado though, John Pervakey sharing some of these ideas with uh, with one of my students I realized it's kind of a might be worth sharing as a podcast just an interesting set of ideas.
1: Okay, that's great. Let's let's, let's go.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um oh, what else? Okay. Well, I'll just get right into it. Um so I was I was doing my sit spotting, right? And I was reading David Abram's book, right? So I'll I'll in the morning in my in my yard, I'll sit and all and I'll read. Um have you read David Abram's book The Spell of the Sensuous? No, no. So it's an interesting book. He's like an ecological philosopher, and he um, uh, he's talking about phenomenology and uh, Husserl's work, and then how Husserl turns uh, is picked up by Merleau-Ponty. Do you are you familiar right. with Merleau-Ponty? Oh,
1: very very familiar with Merleau-Ponty. Okay. Very familiar with Merleau-Ponty, and all of the people that come out of Merleau-Ponty, like Dreyfus and Gallagher, that's okay. a big part of 4 e cognitive science.
0: Okay, beautiful. So I, I was not aware of that. So. So he, he had this this line about how, um, at the level of our sensorial experience, we are all animists. Mm, mm, mm. And he's talking about participation, right? That uh, yep. Levi Bruhl, Levi Bruhl, yeah, yep, yep. uh, had this idea that the indigenous experience of life was was one of participation with. Yep. yep. And the way I've been thinking about this is essentially that that what we describe as the objective world where objects are inanimate right um all of those things are animate they're agentic right so you all you think of them as being agents in the same way that you think of other people as being agents that's right that's right so you also think of them having an um an inner life
1: Yeah. Uh, not in a cartesian sense of subjectivity but you think of them um, having sort of an internal dynamic,
0: um, mm-hmm. something
1: about them that's analogous to the way you're a living thing. Yes.
0: Yeah. So I was, so right before I read that book, I read a book called What the Robin Knows by John Young. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of that? No, no, no. Okay. No. So Tom Brown is one of the most famous kind of uh, sort of bushcraft Specialist, nature connection specialist, who really started all that work, and John Young is one of his students, and he founded the Wilderness Awareness School, which is here um, in Duval, just outside Seattle, and then mm-hmm. many of his students have become students of mine. Right, right. School, right. right. Um, so he has this book called "What the Robin Knows," and it describes basically his um, practice of bird language. Right. So you um, you go to a I mean the f- central practice we've talked about before you sit and you listen to the birds right and then the birds have uh, the birds have a specific set of calls right they, they tend to, they tend to give you specific types of information so there there's the song right which is like territory and and sexuality and then there's the the companion call which is sort of like checking in on each other and then there's alarm calls and then there's aggression right and so if you're aware of the of whether song is happening or not or what the baseline of all of the birds in the forest is, then you can pick up when they're quiet or when they're alarmed and that tells you about things that are happening in the environment.
1: Right. Yeah, that makes good sense. Right. So the
0: birds are in particular, they're basically like they're kind of like the voice of the forest. Yeah. 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 Because there's always bird calls happening. And so it's this thing that you can tune into that gives you this window to what's happening in the world around you.
1: Right, right, yeah.
0: And I was thinking about this and I was thinking about how uh, one way that you could think about this is that when you're listening to the birds' voices, you're listening to the spirit of the birds. Mm, Yeah, Or in some sense, the spirit of the forest itself. Sure yeah and this could be thought of as you you can make a non metaphysical or non supernatural description of this where you could say that you know the birds are essentially like a neural network yeah. And, yeah. whose aggregate behavior you can tune into and basically talk to yeah. and when you're attuned to that, you're getting information that that is actually potentially really profound um yeah. Yeah, yeah. i mean I-
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely, uh, uh, you know, you could say that there's a kind of, well, there's definitely a communication system. And it's doing, uh, you know, a kind of collective distributed cognition problem solving, uh, you know, parceling up the forest into, uh, you know, so optimal territories for mutual survivability, uh, mate finding, alarm calling, uh, noting about predators, yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah. There's a there's a set, there's a way in which it's very much um, uh, a, dis- a distributed cognition, something like a neural net running off. And then, I mean, you can broaden it. You know, the way the trees are biochemically communicating with each other through the soil, um, and um, you know, there are lots of patterns of distributed communication and problem solving. Happening in uh, the ecology of a forest or the ecology of a of,
0: of an ocean, and things like that. Yes, I, I yeah, I'm fine with that. Right. So, so what I was thinking about was this idea that, like, if you're if you're imagine you're a hunter forager, you know, in a in a indigenous context, and you're walking through the woods, and something alerts you that there's a predator nearby. Mm -hmm. Um, That might be an explicit awareness, right? Or it might be an implicit awareness. Yeah, a lot
1: of implicit awareness is going on.
0: Yeah, very much. much. And that, that, you know, that kind of the easiest way that you can pragmatically, it's actually pragmatic in this sense maybe, to conceptualize the thing that is alerting you as a spirit, as an animated force within the world that's external to human beings. Mm So in some way, it, it almost recapitulates the spiritual. And yeah, I
1: mean, uh, I mean, and you have something analogous that 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 I talked about when you're in circling practices, and people talk about the, uh, you know, the emerging spirit, the, the sort of collective intelligence, the we space that seems to be, uh, you know, uh, leading and directing things um, in powerful ways. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I, I that, that that strikes me. Uh, I, I mean. It's plausible, and I think it goes towards what I was saying about, you know, how if you put narrative, in fact, puts you into a dynamical state of mind, that's very good for picking up on dynamical systems, like the complex ecology before us, and what I said about shamans, you know, having improved insight and implicit learning,
0: yeah. machinery,
1: yep, yeah, very much, of course, yeah. and, and also having, and also really honing through imaginal imaginal practices, not imaginary imaginal practices, They're participatory knowing, spending a lot of time, you know, in a serious play of being a deer, gets you really good actually at tracking deer down and also listening to the deer and taking information from the deer. Yeah, th- th- this is all very very powerful stuff. Uh, yeah, I I would I would. Um, I would Argue that many of the arguments that I have made already are, are are deeply convergent with what you're proposing.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's 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 interesting for me because it it's the first time. Like you and I have had this conversation where we have talked about the word spiritual and whether yeah. whether that's a word that is useful, right? Yep. 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 That, that carries so much baggage and is so fudgy that we should just stop and find yep. Out yep. How to a describable. Yeah. Yeah. But in some sense, this 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 interaction between, you know, David Abrams and his description of, of Merlo ponty and John Young, yeah. it, it, it clicked in a way of looking at the spiritual for me, which suddenly yeah. gave it a, a kind of thing that feels like it would be hard to describe actually any other way.
1: Well, that's what I mean, what I'm trying to get about how what en- enacted symbolism isn't just cognitive ornamentation. And the imaginal isn't the same thing as the merely ima- imaginary. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's what I've been trying to get at. Um, you, should, you should know that the, the chapter that Chris and I wrote on dialectic and dialogos, um, it's called Gnosis in the Second Person. We talk about, we call it, you know, the third factor that emerges when people are doing circling and things like that. But yeah. we, also yeah. said, we also said the good word for it is the German word Geist. Because it hangs between sort of mind and spirit, and you know, um, you know, spirit of the times, you know, uh, so it it, it, it so um, and that, that's the kind of language that we need to in order for talk, talking about this. And you should know that very serious um, uh, cognitive psychologists, cognitive scientists, philosophers are talking about this. There's a lot of work on what's called we agency. Um, and the idea that, uh, and there's some ghastly hard science about how uh, uh, distributed cognition can do things that individual cognition can't do. I don't know, they told, told you that experiment where they got literally wired up a bunch of rat brains yeah. and the collective uh, can solve problems that the individual rats can't solve, Just things like that. Um, yeah. But there's work being done on what's called we agency, um, the, the way, and what some people are coming towards um, are you familiar with, there's a concept of what's called a philosophical zombie. A philosophical zombie is, you know, a creature that has all of our intelligence but no consciousness. Yeah. And they're basically now read at least one or two articles where they're now saying when you have like distributed cognition and it generates this kind of flowing collective intelligence, um, you have basically like a philosophical zombie. You've got something that's got a, a, a sort of an intelligence of its own. It doesn't have consciousness, um, but it has intelligence. And it's interesting because um, spirits are, I mean, even mythologically, spirits are weird. They sort of hang between being intelligences, like like principalities, powers and principalities, right? And being full-blown conscious agents. And so that's why the term is also sort of good. It's right on that, and Geist is like that too. It's like ghost, right? It's Mm -hmm. right on the edge of that there
0: yeah it's interesting i mean I, I i'm trying to one one of the frames i'm looking at is like f- f- if you're trying to to root yourself in scientific epistemology then then accepting that there's a subjective conscious experience of the the spirit of the forest uh kind of takes you outside of that
1: yeah i i would push i would push on that right i would say that it's not even a subjective i would say Following Mar- Marlowe Ponti, it's it's, it's transjective. There's a kind of real affordance, not yeah. just imaginary. There's a kind of real affordance being opened up between you and the real distributed communication and cognition of the birds mm-hmm. and the trees, etc.
0: Yeah. So, w- what I'm getting at is that that I think that you know we all like I think that one of the fundamental problems we have is that we have to use our own minds as models, right? Yeah. 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 When we're like I think that the like I always think it's funny, you know. The, the golden rule is treat others as you would have have them treat you, right? Yeah. Like the initiation of empathy is the realization that other people experience the same things that you do.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Right. That's that's the that's the initiation of of empathy. However, um, to effectively employ empathy over time, it's all about becoming sophisticated about recognizing all the ways in which other people aren't actually like you.
1: Yeah 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 exactly exactly.
0: It's a funny thing. And in the same sense it's like if you're dealing with the distributed intelligence of the birds the fastest model that you have to grab for how that operates is that it's fundamentally like your personality and experience, right? Right right right. Spirit of the forest and from the perspective of someone who who who's in an indigenous culture that That may be the most pragmatic way to imagine the world or to oh, my, uh, imagine the world almost makes it sound like you 're accusing them of fantasy but but to to image the world yeah, right? yeah. Or, right. interact with the world um, and, and so there 's a, there's a, there's a conflict there with with at least some elements of of the historical scientific of epistemology right and and it gets at what I think is you know, there's a, an interesting tension that I found in, in my work and people who are similar and attracted to that work between a kind of what I would describe as a naive desire to to um to kind of to reject the West completely and embrace uh-huh. embrace this that it's like I wanna go back, right? It's the Ishmael sort of perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right,
0: right. I was thinking about this specifically in reference to a couple of students who I had who um who really wonderful, beautiful movers in nature. And, you know, they, they were really inspired by that and they've continued to work, but essentially there was a break point between myself and them over, you know, like is the West basically just a perversion and you know, of an of a Eden like, you know, previous existence?
1: Yeah, the Rousseauian kind of thing. Yeah.
0: But, but I would say that, you know, I was trying to articulate to them the fact that like, yes, there's wonderful things that we can learn from, from hunter foragers, but there's also the reality that like violence is is far higher in those cultures. At least that's, that's what it looks like from the archeological record, from the ethnographic record. You know, they don't, they don't have like a, a wide circle of agapic empathy for, for people outside of their tribe. Yep. Um,
1: Yep.
0: And that there's something to be learned from from uh, from Christianity and and so as I was was processing all these thoughts I was thinking about okay the, the, you can think of like when 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 they're calling towards spirituality or all these people who I'm running into through the circles around movement and yoga and all these things and they're talking about spirituality there's part of it that feels like it's this very fudgy thing that gets you to 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 make claims that that you can't back up. And that are just fun, right? They're just they're just like nice fantasies. I can push people over with cheat, right? Um, you know, if I if I become a breatharian, I'll live forever because of energy. Um, and that that stuff really bothers me. But then there's like maybe there's something here that that uh, that can be articulated in a better way that 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 still needs to be captured, right?
1: All right, Rafe, I mean, uh, a lot of my project has been trying to come up with the language for articulating that place and that space. I mean, uh, uh, I mean that's what I've been trying to do. Uh, and, you know, and, and trying to keep that space from being absorbed or reduced to, back to, you know, the traditional religious formulation or, or into some new age goopiness or just dismissed uh, by kind of a, a, of an enlightenment View of science uh, and reality, uh, yeah. Trying to keep that space stably in relation to those, but also not absorbed or reduced it. That's that's been that's 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 uh, well. Welcome to the space because it's a it's a tricky
0: space to be in. Uh, I think it's the right place to be, but it's a tricky space to move around in. So there's two other things that struck me as I was going through these these thoughts that I wanted to share with you. One is. Um, this idea of the spirit of spirit as this kind of aggregate personality, this we, we consciousness or we agency, as you were saying, that's yeah. that's pretty much what Jordan Peterson was trying to describe as God, in his debate with Sam Harris, right? I, I, I think so. Uh,
1: it, it's hard uh, because he also, I mean, there's a Jungian there's a Jungian thing on it that's going there. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's very much, you see, so there's, I mean, there's Jung's God and there's Durkheim's God, right? And those are very different gods, right? A Durkheim is, God is basically the uh, the enacted symbol, the imaginal symbol for these, the, what you're calling the spirit of distributed mm-hmm. cognition. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a, a, and then Jung has the idea um, that uh, the collective unconscious uh, represents more the distillation of, generations of people um into our biology um and at at, you know i think jordan at times was moving between them um but and that's fine because jordan does what he does right Uh, (laughs) um what i mean by that is i would want a more explicit and clean attempt to try and theoretically integrate those and that's what i've been trying to do right to get them more explicitly laid out, find the problems about just uh, about trying to put them together, integrate them together. Uh, that, you know, that's a, pro- what I'm saying is I see that as a problem to be solved. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: I mean, the way that I read that was like, if you think of Durkheim's God and, and Jung's God, um, it, it was almost as if Peterson was arguing that, that that the Jungian God is the reflection, is the inborn reflection of the aggregate of the Durkheimian god over time
1: yeah in a sense in a sense
0: uh, because i'm not sure that anybody else will understand that so i want to just because we are we are recording this it's like Durkheim basically says that god is the representation you know i was just the last time i read this was Durkheim was saying god is a representation of culture essentially yeah yeah it's 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 that aggregate of of all the other people right and and what they represent—that's held—that that's held by you. And then, um, I think the 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 Jungian addition to that is that that thing sort of lives inside of you, even without exposure to the culture, because you've been selected by it over time.
1: Yeah. So you're invoking like the Baldwin effect, and that would be, for example, uh, one of the theoretical machines I would bring out to try and integrate the two together so, well, you know, the, the, in a similar way in which probably language was initially something that was l- mostly learned and was passed on culturally, but you know, there's language creates an environment that has new selective pressure. The yeah. faster you learn language, the more successful you're going to be. And so biology is going to do everything it can uh, to make as much of the machinery for learning language as biologically innate as possible. And so it starts to get internalized, but, you st- that's, that still doesn't mean that you come with a particular language, right? Mm-hmm. You still so right. So uh, you know you, you have to work out the, the how all of this machinery is working and what you can claim it might plausibly uh, be inherited biologically. What still has to be learned from the environment because one of the things of culture is, of course, is that it's supposed to be evolving. It's supposed to be constantly shaping us and the environment to each other mm-hmm. in, in powerful ways. Um, See the thing I have, uh, uh, you know, the thing I have about that is I tend to think of Sorry, I was about to say something that sounded ridiculously pretentious (laughs) One idea I play with is about this about something that's imaginal uh, That is itself a a distributed symbol So maybe the symbols we should be considering now are distributed symbols and so a symbol for right you know, things that can activate the machinery of the unconscious in sort of a Jungian fashion, things that allow us to track and pick up on, you know, the movements and the machinery of our culture. But then I also, and but notice how you're moving also beyond that, you're also moving into, you know, our our fittedness to, well, the actual natural world, the the ecological, and I think ultimately, even the ontological and, I think god right is a is a distributed symbol for how all of those things can sometimes constellate together in a way that starts to become mutually affording so the collective unconscious right uh the machinery of uh of culture uh the ecological machinery and even the way sort of the ontological principles of how intelligent about how you know reality unfolds for us uh because you know, the the lines between all of these things blur. The ecology is dependent on the weather, which is ultimately explained, right, in very ontological terms and causal terms. You see what I'm trying to do? Mm -hmm. And that when when people get away of sort of constellating that together uh, to get those things all in mutual resonance. So I'm playing with the idea of distributed symbols as the best thing for capturing these recursively distributed systems. and, and I think that you come out that in mythology, you get the Trinity, uh, you get Trinities in Christianity, you get Trinities obviously in Vedanta, you know, in aspects of Hinduism, uh, and so you get this idea uh, right uh, uh, even in uh, uh, you know, uh, ancient Hebrew culture you have the Elohim, God is somehow plural in some weird way, right? Um, um, and so um, that's what I'm, I'm sort of playing with right now. Um, yeah. i I'm, I'm just throwing it out there, but I so that's what when you ask people what they mean, right? Uh, by God, I, I I think you're not pointing in one direction, on you know metaphysically. I think you're pointing here, you're pointing yeah. to culture, you're pointing to ecology, and you're ultimately pointing to the, the ontology of the world. Mm-hmm. Did, did that make any sense? I think so.
0: just... <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe I'll, I'll watch you back and I'll understand it better. Do you mind tilting your camera just a little bit so that um, oh. when you leaning forward? Uh, your, your head doesn't get cut off.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry about that.
0: No, uh, no, no, it's fine. It's, just, it's good. So um, when we're pointing to God, so distributed symbol, right? So what would be the difference between a distributed symbol and a, and a, and a non-distributed symbol? I think I'm hung up on that terminology a little bit.
1: Well, because uh, what I'm trying to get by, uh, well, think about what's going on with, with distributed cognition. You have, with the birds, right, you have low loci, where there's sort of hubs of cognitive processing, and then you have mm-hmm. communication channels between them. And let's say, like, let, let's say you have something like the self, in union terms. Mm-hmm. you have got this, this agency that's doing kind of intra-psychic cognitive processing. And then you have a different agency. You have society, Durkheim. And the machinery there, and the and the collective, you know, problem solving that it's doing. And then you have what you've been doing. You have the ecology and all the distributed cognition in there. And then of course, right? Like you like I said, you ultimately have the ontological structure of the world. So that's what I mean. It, 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 you're not. That's what I mean. It's not a single symbol. You have, I have a symbol that allows me to activate this, access and activate this, activate and access that. And your shamanic symbols, your animistic symbols that allow me to activate and access. The ecology of the forest but ultimately and this is you know this is in Ponty, right i ultimately have sort of enacted symbols that put me in sync with you know basic ontological principles you see them in the core of neoplatonism or think of um Daoism, right the, the the dao the way everything is ultimately self-organizing and dynamic that's ultimately an ontological move that, yeah. that's what i'm talking about
0: yeah it's interesting because one thing that strikes me is that um when you can if you conceive of the of the birds as having a spirit that you can attune to yeah you could then see that that spirit is in some sense um it, it has an independence but it is also a subset of the broader spirit of the forest right like as you mentioned the yep. trees have have also their language that you can attune to yep. and very much uh, and you know, there's information coming in from like how fast the leaves are changing that may make you realize something that you wouldn't realize otherwise. Or if there's leaves that are um, are changing color out of season, that tells you something. And there's all this yeah. information that's happening in that environment. Um, Even then, what the types of
1: trees are growing in various areas.
0: Yeah, that'll tell you a lot of stuff. Yeah, and so there's so much. There's so there's so much there, and then of course that you know you can think of that forest as part of. The broader spirit of the land, let's say. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. then that's you know, that's that's as you said, that bases out into like the universe, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um and then in some sense that creates uh like a a sense of the spiritual which has a, a oneness and a multiplicity at the same time.
1: Exactly. So how all things participate in the one is a classic neoplatonic theme. Yeah. Right. And I've, I've been reading uh, the, the Aeneid that Plotinus writes about soul, which is basically what you're talking about with Spirit, right? And how, how there's a sense there's a soul for the world, but there's also a soul for individual things. Like, and it's, it's exactly that kind of gradation. People were trying to work this out. And, and, like, and they, they devoted a lot of time, and it's not wasted time and effort, trying to get like, really clear about a way of thinking about all of these relations that you're putting your finger on right now.
0: So there's a couple a couple things there that, that came up in this chain of thought that I wanted to share with you as well. One, so there's uh like I, I brought up Peterson and his description of God. But there's also the, you know, like Peterson's been immensely influential for me, as we mentioned. But I, I, I feel like sometimes there's like he articulates two halves of something, but then articulates one side much more strongly, and you can see him lean into it. And I yeah. much, right. Um I feel like in, in his description of the archetypal, he talks about the feminine and its ambivalence and the masculine and its ambivalence and how we need to have an understanding of both, right? Father culture, mother nature. Um, but he also, it feels like to me, like when he talks about the masculine heroic, that is really well articulated and, and the feminine heroic doesn't feel nearly as well articulated. I agree. We've talked
1: about this before. Yeah. I agree. I
0: and this agree. feels like another place where we're run, where I feel like I'm running into that because I feel like, when I was talking about Jordan Peterson with my students and, and this this reclamation of the West, they're not hearing the, the understanding of the spirit of the forest, which is what's driving and really interesting to them, right? It's like that aspect of it. And that's also been like, I don't know if I've told you this, but I have had this question in my mind, uh, like if I, if I had the chance to speak with Jordan, like the first question I would want to ask him is, Okay, so there's this archetypal world where you have the masculine, the feminine, and the divine individual, right? The father culture, mother nature, divine individual, and we have to. If if we are not if we are not if we don't have archetypes that that allow us to look at all of this, then then we're incomplete, right? So if you only see nature as positive, all like an environmentalist, extreme environmentalist type, you're missing a lot. And if you yeah. only see culture as positive and not destructive, you're missing a lot, um, right. and you're you're going to end up in a place that's very ideologically dangerous. So, okay, that's great. And there's feminine, there's masculine, there's the individual, but you also make the claim, Peterson does, that that Christianity is the most archetypally complete religion. Yeah, and yet, well, and I'm yet. critical effect. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but and yet. There's no feminine spirit that is held at the same rank, right? There's the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, right? One of my good friends is a Christian, and I, I joke with him that that's the ghost of the divine feminine that's not being addressed here, right? Yeah. And, and, and we know that, you know, historically, Yahweh had a female consort, right? Yes. At one point. But, um, but it strikes me because it's like you have to be able to talk about the spirit of culture, as he's describing in that discussion with Sam Harris, but also the spirit within nature. Yep. And if you don't, then there's something unbalanced. And this. So okay, let me let me just finish this thought for a second. Because keep going, keep going, connects, please. Next to something. So then I was thinking about I, I just happened while I'm reading Abrams and while I'm reading Young, I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my children. Wow. Right? And Chronicles of Narnia is about these traumatized kids in London from around the period of World War II who go out into the country and they escape into this magical world where Jesus is right there, yeah. right? This is the world where Jesus is present for you and is going to save your butt, right? right, right, right. But that world is filled with satyrs and fauns and talking animals and naiads and dryads. The spirit of the forest, the spirit of the animals, the spirit of the trees... Is all present, and not only that, but um, but the capacity of mankind to become blind to those spirits is a central point in the story. And the magician's yeah. nephew, right, uh, the uncle of uh, I can't remember the uncle Andrew, right, cannot hear Aslan speak because he treats him as a dumb beast. Yes, and in and in Prince Caspian, as we're going into Prince Caspian the Telmarines have taken over the land and they've turned most of the animals into dumb beasts because they no longer listen to them. Yeah, that's right. right. And I was thinking about how, in this, this, oh, okay. This is gonna take me a little while to unpack, so (laughs) uh, please be patient. Um, So there's, so, so there's this, there's something in Lewis where he's saying, he's this great apologist for Christianity, right? And he wants to bring us back to Christianity. But in this children's story that he tells he unites his christianity with a return to animism yes very much very and that's much. very outside of the main line of christianity i mean it's it's like you know as i understand it like there's theological debates about you know most most theology didn't believe that animals had souls yes they right. clearly thought that right um, and then you you know and tell me if I'm wrong, but my reading of this from you, because I'm, you know, I haven't gone and read these. You know, a lot of this information is coming from you or Jordan. Um, but like a lot of that kind of starts with Thomas Aquinas, right? That the world is split, and we are yeah, yeah. no longer homed in a world of animate spirits that we're in participation with. Yeah. After uh, the his think, confrontation with Aristotelian science, is that?
1: I, I, I think that me? yeah. I think the sp- the splitting of the supernatural and the natural. Um, is one of I mean I, I think like Aquinas is ultimately very Neoplatonic, but he splits the two, and he, he does it for you know, like a, like you said for um, reasons of confronting with Aristotelian science. But I think it does do what you said. It tends to move. It, it tends to it tends to empty the world. I mean this was part of the Nietzschean critique when you split things like that, right? And then you say and then what happens is this world is now. The natural world becomes completely equated with the fallen world and it, it, it has no value in and of itself It only has a value as a way of getting you to this world And then what the problem that you then face is if you start to really realize that this world is inaccessible to you And maybe it doesn't even exist then you're left with this But this is the world that you've thrown that has been. This is the, the world that you've thrown away, right? Um, and, uh, and so that's I mean, I think there's deep connection uh, as Nietzsche articulates between that separation and the rise of nihilism. Uh, um, I, I think that, that that's exactly the case.
0: Yeah, um, I, I mean, it's something you've articulated before, but to me that's such a profound idea, the idea that we, we extracted meaning out of the world that we exist in and placed it in a supernatural world, and then science killed the supernatural world, so we're left yeah, with yeah. a dead world that are, that is meaningless that we inhabit. Because, yes. we, because yeah. we took all of the meaning out of this world Invested it somewhere else, and then we lost that too
1: I think that's right well there's a lot going on in Lewis, right so remember what uh I think it's in the magician's nephew or maybe it's in the lion the Witch in the Wardrobe uh you know um i you know I, I i don't know what they teach children these days it's all in Plato, right uh, and so yes. there's, a neoplat- yeah, there's a Neoplatonic yeah there's a neo platonic vision running
0: through there. Um, it's in, in and, The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe at the very end, uh, yeah. Cedric, or not Cedric, sorry, his name is Diggory. Diggory, yeah. who's the magician's nephew, yeah. rose up to become the professor
1: That's set, right.
0: at the end yeah. of uh, Lion, the Witch, yeah. and the Wardrobe. Right, which is a really interesting
1: uh, take on this uh, because he's trying to get, you know, he's, he's basically invoking um, uh, the pre-Aristotelian neoplatonic, pre-Aristotelian Plato and then the later neoplatonic vision. Uh, and that's clearly what's going on and you see that and it's come out in practical consequences and th- give me a sec because this aligns with what you're talking about and i asked paul about this when i talked to him recently the most recent conversation I, and you know I, I wanted to make sure that this is a true story and he said it is true and I, paul's an expert on um on uh lewis that a, a, a young girl once came to lewis yeah, and said yeah, yeah me lewis. i love I, you know i have a confession you know I love Aslan more than Jesus. And he basically said, that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's okay because it wasn't the particular historical form that he thought was relevant. She was entering into uh, a correct relationship with, you know, the divine. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, And so, you you know, Lewis is is a tough nut to crack, that's for sure. But there's so much going on there, and I, I think you're right. Um, Lewis is pointing; he's trying to do a couple things. He's trying to revivify the Neoplatonism within Christianity uh, to give us a, um, um, something that, um, well, is basically a scaffolding for the cultivation of wisdom, because the scientific worldview isn't doing that for you. So you need. He wants to rebuild, because what the professor's talking about at the end there, now that he's not talking about knowledge, he's talking about a lack of wisdom. He's talking about foolishness, right? So he's trying to revivify the Neoplatonism to say, no, no, we need to get, we need a a scaffolding for wisdom. And then, like you said, I I think he is trying uh, in connection with that to, you know, bring back the, well, I'll, I'll put it this way, the spirit of nature, the way you're talking about it here. Mm-hmm. Um, Jung wrestled with this too right he thought the elevation of Mary to almost godhood was a really important event and I guess I take it there's something similar that Mary has a similar high status within eastern orthodoxy but I, I, I also agree with you that it, it's not clear to me uh, that uh, Christianity I mean Christianity is, there are theologians who are working very hard on this or trying to come back around to um, the capacity to see nature as sacred. See, there's deep reasons against this. Because uh, it goes back to the way how Yahweh is a different God. Yahweh is a God who moves through time and space. He's a God of history. And yeah. as you're rightly pointing, is therefore much more of a cultural God. He's a God of history, and he's not bound to a particular location or function. And what that means, right, is that he's very different from the pagan gods who are bound to the natural world in in a very tight manner. Mm -hmm. And so anything that sort of seems to be tying the divine or the sacred to the natural smacks of paganism and pantheism for people, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And and, and so Christianity has had a very sort of uh, attitude uh, towards that. But on the other hand, it's tried to resist the Gnosticism that says that the material world is evil and in prison. And so Christianity has got this really ambiguous state relationship to the natural world. It's somehow good, but it's not sacred. It's, so I think there's actually, uh, to put it in a bit of a, a, bit of maybe a bit harshly, I think there's a lot of confusion in Christianity about nature.
0: Mm-hmm. This is
1: why, right, the, the, the rejection of naturalism is also, I think, often very confused.
0: Naturalism, as opposed to supernaturalism
1: yes exactly, okay, exactly. so okay. naturalism as the worldview that sustains the natural sciences yeah yeah
0: yeah can can you know can spirituality be embedded within naturalism that's a yeah, yeah exactly 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 so to go back to my 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 question for jordan right i i Where's, where is the fully articulated divine, right? Even Mary, as Mary is elevated, she doesn't become ambi- ambivalent. She only represents the positive element, right? Yeah, exactly. If you agree that there is a negative element, it's it's in Lilith who isn't even in the story, right? Yeah, yeah, She's excluded, yes. And she's not, she's not, she doesn't, she's not a fully represented individual, right? Where you, because we are all ambivalent creatures, right? You know, Shulzhenitsyn, the line, down every, uh, human, the line between good and evil runs down every human heart, right? Yeah, so no, if no. you divide the feminine between Lilith and Mary, you're, you're denying that, that ambivalence in some sense. Yeah,
1: I, I agree with that. And that, the, I mean, Jung, Jung made a, a very similar argument. Um, but, you know, I have a much larger argument against Jordan and that I think his representation of Jung as some sort of a Christian apologist is, is deeply mistaken about Jung.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. young one, so I'll, I'll let you guys uh, deal with that one. But, but what I wanted to bring up was this idea that, okay. Um, it seems to me that if you want to revive Christianity in some sense, you have to deal with this, but you especially have to deal with this because two things are true right now, which are, were not historically true. Right. One is um in, in some sense, in all the traditional mythology, mother Mother nature is in, precedes and is in many ways more powerful than father culture, right? Like Tiamat comes first, uh-uh. flood is there, right? And then, you know, then you have, you have Yahweh who says, you know, I have defeated Le- uh, Leviathan, I have defeated Behemoth, right? Like those are representations of the, of the terrifying power of nature. And he's claiming that culture now is, is superseding that. Yes. And never before- Culture and
1: history. Yeah. Oh,
0: sure. But never before have we existed at a time in which father culture is a danger to mother nature like now.
1: Yes, I agree with that. Yes. Cuz
0: you have an archetypal religious structure that has no articulation of this aspect of the sacred at a time when like small actions over here can have massive consequences over here. That seems like it, it, it it's really missing something that it needs to act effectively as a guide. I, I agree I agree and then the, the other aspect of that is you know for most of the history of christianity and 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 Judaism before that uh, women for you you can call them oppressive regions or you can you, you could stipulate that it's just biology that was holding them down but women didn't have the opportunity to wield power the way that they have it now yes yeah. and it seems to me that that you can't respect the agency of something that you don't see as an ambivalent creature.
1: Mm. Yeah, this is a, I, I mean, I'm not trying to take anything away from you, but um, yeah, I, I've heard that this critique made before, um, yeah. that um, the, the, the separation, uh, you know, to the shape, the, the separation, the, the, it's, it's like the separation of the supernatural from the natural, right? It's not, it's not the opponent processing the symbol it's the separation right you have the the separation of the whore from the mother the chaste mother and the always always uh, decadent whore right And, and that that um that is a a a model that will not in any way in either way help women within um what you're talking about a culture in which um real power uh, real power is possible for
0: them now yes i agree like how how do how do we it, it feels like like you know women are a mystery right that's the classic thing but it's in some sense like we have archetypally religiously cut them into pieces that we can't yep. integrate yep
1: right i
0: agree. Like, like i grew up in the counterculture and i think that's a a big part of the way that i look at things but i still feel like like as a young man the idea of the, the, the woman as the object of love and the woman as the object of lust were very hard to integrate, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. And the idea that women were not just objects of lust, but, but agents of lust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. It took me, I mean, I think it literally took me into my 30s to be able to like, to fully sort of have a representation of the feminine in my mind that was equipped with her own lust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's I mean I don't I don't know if that's something you know that's inherent in in growing up as a boy or my own temperament, but it feels like it could be part of this cultural history for sure.
1: I think it is. I mean, uh, I mean, we have to be careful not to overgeneralize, uh, but I do think there is um, a lot of ways in which the Christian heritage has really. really misframed the reality uh, of what women are. Now, I mean, again, there are Christians out there working hard on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I've talked to Mary, you might've seen I've had some conversations with Mary Cohen and she is really trying to, you know, re-articulate uh, from, you know, she's deeply influenced by Ratzinger, who in some ways is conservative, I get that. But Ratzinger is also deeply informed by phenomenology, right? And so Mary's. Sort of doing this phenomenological re- reinterpretation um, of what uh, you know, masculinity and femininity mean, and she's trying to resituate that within a Christian context. So that there is a sense in which, and it's of course I think completely appropriate that it's a woman,
0: Mary, uh, who's doing this. <laughs> uh, um, and you know, and she, and she Nom- <laughs> What is that? Nominological determinism? <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so she uh, sh- she represents, I think, a, a, a growing way in which I think women are going to play a significant role. How do I want to say this? I don't want to sound too If Christianity, if Jonathan Pajot is right, if Christianity man- manages once again to somehow restructure itself like it has done in the past, and I, I, I don't, I'm not confident that that's going to happen, but what I say is, if it's going to happen, I think women are going to play a very substantial role in that restructuring, mm-hmm. and I think people like Mary uh, are the vanguard of that kind of thing. And, and you have to understand, Mary is like she's in many ways an orthodox Catholic. She's not some sort of you know extreme left, mm-hmm. you know, uh, ultra feminist or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm not trying to dis feminism or anything like that. That's why I use the adjective ultra, right? (laughs) Um, uh, So she she is, right? So she's, what I'm saying is she's working within what she considers her home of Catholic Christianity. She's not an outsider critiquing it. She's working within. But I think uh, she is doing, uh, you know, she represents what a lot of people are trying to do. Uh, I'm not saying I think I agree with her or her answers, or or I, I think they should be taken seriously. Um, but uh, i do think that the presence of people like mary actually strengthens your argument because the fact that christianity is sort of organically bubbling up uh, a way of trying to fix this problem
0: i think actually is good evidence that there is a problem that needs to be fixed yeah i mean if you look at, at the way that mary has risen as a figure of devotion in different christian contexts over and over again and not just mary but female saints like saint bridget in ireland yeah yeah, yeah. It, it, it's you know i was thinking about this idea that you know um you're talking about we have language we have an inherent drive for language but the language has it has to be provided by the environment right yeah.
1: okay. but obviously
0: if you you're not a full human being if you don't have language exactly okay. and i was thinking about this idea that in sense in a sense like our psychology has a God-shaped hole in it. Augustine said that. Right? Augustine said that. Yeah. Okay. So God, there's a God-shaped hole in the psychology. But what what came out of that for me was like, how how predetermined is that God-shaped hole, right? Like how much, like, you know, like Peterson's argument is that, you know, men selected men over time. For these characteristics of heroicness, that then they were taken off the top by women, and that's the spirit of culture. And then over time, that's internalized. The better sort of internal representation you have of that, the easier it is for you to match with that. And that's what an archetype is. That's what what what, what, it, what he's talking about. And so there's this interesting qu- question. I think it's a very open question of like, okay, let's let's assume that there is a religion or spiritual whole in our psychology, um, you know. I think like, if you look at Scott, Scott Atron and Pascal Boyer, I haven't read them. I've, I've only seen them through other people. But I have, you know, there's, we know to some degree that when you take away religion, you don't get atheism. Yeah, right? don't you kind of get animism, is what it looks like.
1: You, you, you get, well, you, well, you can. You, you sometimes get Gnosticism. That's what Jung found. Right? You get animism, you can get Gnosticism. I, I, I think there's a plurality of default settings. Mm-hmm. uh for that that uh, god shaped hole you're talking about, I think it's I mean I think it's very much like chomsky if you allow me extend the analogy like chomsky's notion of universal grammar. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you come with is uh, and th- uh, somebody wrote a book about this arguing that he thinks i can't I read this book, I can't remember the title of the author. I apologize to the author I can't remember your name uh, the idea that we have something like universal grammar uh, but not for language but a universal grammar uh, for sort of mythopoetic enacted symbolism and, and, and imaginal work. yeah. And, I, and, and that sort of strikes me as right. But if that's the case, that's an argument neither for perennialism nor for relativism, it's an argument for pluralism. That there's a universality of process, but the products that can be like, there's a universal grammar, but the number of languages we can have from that is indefinitely large.
0: Mm-hmm. And what's interesting in this case is if we, if we go back to that question of like, how how predetermined are the archetypes in your head? What this argument about what we've seen repeatedly within Christianity might indicate is that there, you know, this is basically what I think Peterson argues in Maps of Meaning is that there is a feminine divine represented in your mind. Mm -hmm. What's striking to me is that he argues that and then goes and argues that the best reputation of the archetypal overall is a religion that from my perspective, has a very weak representation of that. I agree. I agree. Um,
1: and you know, you know, and Jordan talks, and he Hill will invoke the yin and yang symbol, mm-hmm. uh, and but he won't pick up on you know the the profound role that nature plays within Taoism in a way it doesn't play um, in Christianity. Yeah. Like, and you know, and and and. and I, yeah, I, I know, uh, <laughs> I'm trying not to, I, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect uh, for a lot of Jordan's work and, um, and I'm very grateful for a lot of the work he's done and the way he's supported my work.
0: Yeah, he um, was recently sharing your talks, which was great. Yep,
1: yeah, he, he, he's a good colleague. Um, and we were, we were on the edge of becoming friends before he rocketed yeah, into yeah. superstardom. And so that's all the case. Uh, and I'm not—I'm not trying to uh, dismiss that in any way. Um, uh, I, I significantly disagree with him on his political vision, and I'm allowed to do that because I'm a Canadian and I'm at the same <laughs> university that he is. And I see a lot of the situation very differently. I don't think he was properly treated, et cetera. So, bang. Let's put that aside. What I want to say is, all that being the case, I still have deep criticisms, and and I think you're. I know you're very respectful. He's a very important figure for you, and and I'm not trying to challenge that. But I think you're feeling you're, you're, there's a critique you're forming, which is like, there's a contradiction here. Um, And I think that contradiction is what I've been trying to point out with, I think it is a contradiction to try and derive the Christian apologetics out of a Jungian framework. I think that is a contradiction. I do not think that works. I think that is an argument that is deeply, deeply flawed. And I'm allowed, I mean, I'm gonna get into trouble with this no matter what I do, right? (laughs) I'm allowed to criticize his arguments. I'm not saying he's a bad person. I'm not saying he's not heroic. I'm not saying blah, I'm not saying anything about his character. I don't resent him. I don't resent him. I have defended Jordan at times, but I think it's a bad argument and it's a bad argument and it's a bad argument.
0: Yeah, and, and it doesn't also mean that there isn't lots of insight and wisdom in, contained in the argument, right? Just of course thought, not. Bad arguments have great insights in them. Very often. Uh, yeah. that's, why,
1: that's why they survive. If they were just bad arguments, they would disappear.
0: You know, Peterson himself says that, like, the, the, uh, the death anxiety theorists, you know, he feels like they're wrong. But he also feels like they're wrong in an incredibly important way.
1: Oh, totally, totally. And so uh, uh, that,
0: that you can argue the same thing, that you think that this this, this marriage of Jungianism with an apologetics of Christianity has a, a linchpin that's that's simply unstable. Well, I but think there's, there's many linchpins of wisdom in the rest of it, right?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I've articulated other linchpins. I don't think there's just one. Yeah. I think there's other moves in the argument that are similarly flawed. But I want to reinforce what you're saying. There are lots of insight it. I have the same attitude like towards that kind of argument that I have for Descartes' arguments. I think Descartes' arguments are 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 ultimately wrong. I sometimes say this to my class, I wish I could be wrong like Descartes wrong. I just when I'm wrong, I'm just John and I'm wrong and nobody cares. Right. But when Descartes wrong, the whole culture shifts in like a powerful way because there's tremendous insight, there's tremendous conceptualization, there's tremendous theorizing in Descartes. Right, and so that's why I treat Descartes very respectfully, even though I ultimately reject his arguments. And there's no and there's no inconsistency there. I can re- I can respect somebody's argument and respect what they're doing, and still ultimately think it's a bad argument, right? Um, so yeah, I I think that's the way to take it.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, like when you when you had your conversation with Anderson Todd, I also had that that sense of wanting to defend Peterson, because I think yeah. in some sense he's I've been thinking about this myself in my my role as a teacher of movement that that I have uh, I, I have in some sense entered an archetypal role for people. Yes, right? and yes. that 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 Peterson's ideas are, are no longer in some sense there. There's an academic layer to Peterson's ideas, and, not, and that's very very important. But there, but he's also a an archetype within the culture. Yes, and that. And, uh, and he, uh, yeah. That critiquing him in the way that an academic critiques for people who are not academics who are following him for those other aspects, yeah. Yeah. Is, it's hard to see it. You know, very, it's, very, very. very, very.
1: I, but I think what happened around that was actually what should have happened. In fact, I'm very pleased you came to me mm-hmm. and you 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 made the defense, and then and we we recorded this, and we had what I consider a genuine idea logos. Yeah. Right, in which we both got to a place out of that where I couldn't have got to on my own about you know the the, the heroic stage, perhaps a better understanding of the archetype that is needed right now. I thought that was an exact, that's the kind of thing that should be happening. I'm not trying to foreclose on Jordan yeah. or at all. I wanna provoke exactly what happened between you and I, and I thought the place where it went was beautiful,
0: was yeah. great. Yeah. And I feel like this is a continuation of that, right? Yes. I do. You know, you're um, uh, you're obviously concerned that people are going to view it as a criticism, and maybe maybe we're talking a lot about the places where we have critiques of him. But for me, that's that's coming from a place where, like, my worldview has has been colonized by the guy in so many ways that, like, you know, yeah. it, it, it has to be. You know, the critique is, of course, nested within extraordinary respect. That,
1: that, I I don't I don't critique things that I don't consider important. I, I, my life is too finite for doing that yeah, right? yeah. I, I, I can't do that I, I i wrote jordan that specifically explicitly when he because before he uh sort of uh, tweeted about my work he he sent me a quick email and said how are you doing like how's your series going and like pretty good or are you happy with it and i said yeah um and <laughs> he said well okay well i i you know i hope you can I want to help you. I want you to get up to a million subscribers. And I thought, like, well, that's nice. awesome. Thank you. But then <laughs> I said, no, Jordan, I miss you. Because, because we, used to, we used to meet and talk in the halls yeah. for Pete's Bake, right? And, and I said, you know, your work is so close to mine and so important that I have to criticize it, right? Yeah. right, right, uh, right? And, 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 but it would be better if I could do that in actual dialogue with you, like when we've had public debates and discussions. That's what I would prefer. I don't like doing this one-sidedly. I don't want to, right? But precisely because his work is important and I respect him, that's why I have to criticize it. I have to critique it, right? But I I don't want him to be deified. That, That ultimately makes him irrelevant in a very important way that I think is the wrong way to... I think both demonizing him and deifying him make him treat him unfairly and make and make his work deeply irrelevant yeah um, so that that
0: and if it so that's what to if it can't if it can't be grown off of and and it cannot you can't you can't grow from it if you can't critique it exactly and he that's so ultimately not, an archetypal thing right you
1: know the son and the father right right <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah so uh, so that to, to to deviate from that for a second I, as i was going through all this stuff sitting there um you know after reading that passage from david abram's i had this this sense so when i encountered peterson's work one of those ideas that was so powerful for me was the idea of of rescuing the bones of your father from the underworld right yeah yeah very powerful and and, and this is one of the things that i think has has been very different for me from many of the other people kind of in my sphere because i view the west as something that has an immense amount of profound wisdom to be extracted.
1: Yeah, you know I agree with you on this.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I think that a lot of people are, um, they're stuck in the interaction, and so I, I came up with this parable in my head, and I, I need to work on it, but it basically was like, imagine a boy who has, um, who has a father, who, who has one father who's not present, and he's told how terrible he is all the time, right? But he sees his work in the world, and it's not all terrible. And he constantly interacts with other people who have respect for him. And then there's another father who he's being told all the time is, 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 is this leader who's amazing, who's, you know, the vision of the future, who, who, you know, but what he's experiencing is that he's narcissistic and that he is inconsistent and hypocritical, right? And self-righteous. And self-righteous. And for me, that's the story of my relationship with the culture and the counterculture. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. So then, then, like, as I'm going to to pull the bones of the father from the underworld, which is like, I think one of the reasons that that Peterson has had so much profundity is because, um, or he's had such a profound impact on people is because we, like, as an academic culture, as like an elite culture, we have decided that our own heritage is evil. Well,
1: well that's something where Jordan and I are deep uh, deep agreement. I, I, uh, well, you know, I've done it repeatedly. You're I, right. I, am deeply critical of that hypothesis. Yes. Deeply yeah. critical of that.
0: Hypothesis. You made a very big point in the first time that we talked that yeah. that that we don't have to only look to Taoism yeah. and, yeah. and Zen yeah. and, totally. and yeah. find spiritualities and mysticisms that that can that can inform how you respond. Totally. Totally. That's that's something where Jordan and I are very consonant. Yeah. That, yes. Now, I think he happens to
1: misrepresent it. I think he, he over-homogenizes and over-vilifies the postmoderns as, the, you know, what's happening. I, I don't think that's fair. Uh, I mean, especially with, you know, aspects of Derrida and how Derrida has influenced the rise of negative theology and a rebirth in Neoplatonic uh, thinking. Or Foucault and the later Foucault, you know, doing work on the care of the self and how, that, how he gets involved with Pierre Hadot in ancient philosophy and Stoicism. Like, that is also uh, what you find in Foucault and Derrida. You have to, it, 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 so I think I agree with, uh, like what you said, the, the Jordan and I agree with trying to say that the West is, you know, a broken, horrible thing. <clears throat> I think that's a mistake. Uh, but I, I am, uh, I don't tend to agree with him um, in his portrayal as uh, the, the postmodernists, as sort of the cadre, the cabal, that is out there, sort of, you know, uh, promulgating this. Uh, I, I don't think that. I mean, Absolutely. there are aspects of postmodernism to do this, but that's not that's not genuinely. I think a sufficient account. I think I, I think the modernism of the Enlightenment should be deeply criticized. I do it too.
0: Yeah, I think I think I think that's right. You know, I think. Um, are you familiar with Ken Wilber?
1: Yes, I'm yes. uh, just beginning to. Uh, I've ha- I've had a couple talks with. Uh, 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 Doshin, uh, who's a who's a, a Roshi, um, and he's recommended. I I bought Wilbur's book, The Religion of Tomorrow, because that was recommended as the book that I would find most relevant. Um, and I'm going to start reading Wilbur's work when I get a
0: chance. So, I I think that I lean or I let's say I feel more like Peterson feels about postmodernism versus how you feel. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: I'm not as
0: familiar with. With with Foucault and Dorita. what I'm what I've experienced is having gone through university as an anthropology student. Yes, I, I get that. Postmodernism yeah. ha- was was uh, was you know tr- transcendent, and having felt like essentially that they had destroyed the discipline of everything that was valuable. Yeah. and and, and that I've seen that happen over and over again, and the rise of the woke generation. So like whatever F- Foucault and Dorita said directly. Like, I'm looking at the 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 second and third order effects of it, and saying this is a deeply poisoned tree, right? Uh, yeah. uh, that that's how it feels to me. And I, I'm I'm not going to make a I d- I don't have the the chops to make a technical argument uh, to to back. Uh, what I'm asking you to do is look at
1: uh, there's other branches of the tree. Yeah, yeah. you Find much more relevant and consonant with in fact with what we're talking about right now. Read John Caputo, uh, like you know, his book on Heidegger, the mystical element in Heidegger. Had a profound, profound, deeply positive in, impact on them, things like that.
0: So I bring up Wilbur though, because Wilbur um, Wilbur's critique of postmodernism. He you know he calls it the the mean green meme, right? And he says fundamentally it's unstable and it collapses back to to a extremely uh, negative tribalism. Uh, yeah. So you know, but he also sees it as a tier. That precedes what he calls the integral stage. Right? It's like you have to go through. You have to understand postmodernism. You have to, because, um, like, I think sometimes the modernist period is like naively empirical. Right? It's, um, if you can measure it and, and 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 quantify it, then you can say that it's real in some sense. And it, it's like there's a lot that gets missed. And postmodernism, I think, has real critiques, but it has no. It doesn't create a new stable foundation. Well, that's the thing. I mean,
1: so what I would say is that postmodernism. Um, I, again, I, I'm hesitant to use it as a category. I think you should. You should. We talk about specific arguments made by specific theorists would be sure. uh, more accurate. But let's let's put, play this way right now because I, I I mean I have good faith in you. Yeah. Uh, right. Um. So, um, I th- I think I, I think what you see, especially in Foucault, is a realization that postmodernism. Um, while critiquing the epistemology of the Enlightenment, it was not affording what was one of the things that was actually lost in the Enlightenment, which is the wisdom tradition, mm-hmm. and that uh, what need what was needed is a positive project, uh, bringing back um, the cultivation of wisdom, and you know, and that's part of you know part of the Heideggerian tradition that comes from Marlo Ponty and other things like that, um, and like I said, you can see that coming out very carefully. I think um, towards the end of Foucault's career, um, there, in a, not so much him, but what a lot of the people who have been influenced by him ha- have taken up. Um, that so, so, one of the th- and this is something I'm recently working on. That, you know that modernity is around these what I call the three monos, and I'm sort of a- also playing with like you know having mono as an illness. <laughs> um, so there's the part you already know, the monolithic mind, that all of thinking is reduced to propositional knowing. Yeah. And then there's the monologic mind, that right the cognition is ultimately uh, done monologically in your head rather than dialogically in distributed cognition, even though the cognitive science and evidence is mounting against that dramatically. Um, yeah. And then also monophasic, right? that uh, we, there's only one state of consciousness that gives us access to reality. And we shouldn't pursue altered states of consciousness or transcendence or transformation because that's just clouded bad thinking. And I think those three monos are something that postmodernism, like effectively sort of challenged and shattered. Um, but I think the, and I think what I see some of the metamodern people trying to do is to try and say, but the answer is not just to lay in the rubble of the discarded monos, The answer is, okay, but what does it mean to go with, live in a culture that recognizes the importance of a a polyphasic mind, who recognizes multiple kinds of knowing and thinks that the mind is inherently dialogical in nature. What does that mean? And I think that, I'm trying to understand metamodernism uh, as around that kind of idea. And that way means reconceiving what rationality means, reconceiving.
0: Meta rationality, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're know, like chat, you're starting to also have a conversation with David chapman Ellis.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so I, I haven't studied Wilbur's work very deeply, but one of the interesting aspects of it is so So he talks about, I think it's turquoise, right? It's the, or that's spiral dynamics, then he borrows it, but right, there's the, there's a the lean, the mean green meme or boomeritis, right? That's the, the postmodern thing. And then, then there's, the integral layer, right? And what you're talking about is maps, right? I think to what he's calling the integral layer. right? And, and I think of you and Peterson both as integral thinkers. But I think that when you're, when you enter the integral, whenever you enter a level, right? The most obvious thing is that the level that you were, that what just was is is really bad, right? <laughs> you can see all the flaws in it, right? Now, the integral level is the level at which you're supposed to be able to start. You know, according to Wilbur, it's the level at which you you begin to be able to integrate the wisdom of each level, right? So, right. so nationalism, right, goes past tribalism, right, and then then there's then there's a like a global sense of of yep. community, right? But then there's a level at which you you can say, okay, there's actually important things that that were only really seen by the people at the tribal level. Right. and we're forgotten at the national level and this level and now let's let's remember all three right let's remember let's 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 hold these insights right magical thinking becomes uh you know religious thinking becomes modern thinking but actually there's ways that we need to be able to access all of them
1: yeah what you and i are talking about in fact today yep.
0: yeah exactly and then so like I, I I bring this up, I guess, to defend uh, Jordan, but but I think that this I don't know maybe this will be an interesting thing for you to. But I think that Jordan, in part, he's, he's at that level of um, of reacting to he's he you know he's entering the integral and he can still really see all the stuff that's happening yeah. with with this and he's surrounded by it and so th- there's a there's a tendency to be very reactive. So I kind of like for me the way that I've in my head looked at you guys and you know. Uh, I say this with respect, but it, but it feels like to me you're more deeply into you're more deeply in the integral level, but the, so it's as if you're kind of balanced here where you're the postmodern is almost not relevant to you anymore. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I see Peterson having a kind of he's kind of more linear through those layers, right? He hasn't <laughs> spread out at the integral level. He has some insights that are very high, very deeply integral. And then he has places where he's really stuck on those insights that are at the point where you're breaking out of the postmodern. And oh. so there's much more reactivity still to that. And I think that you- That's very good astute, right? I mean, sorry, it sounds self promotional on my part, but I
1: mean, I, I, but I, I was I was actually really impressed by the, the clarity
0: of that. That was really good. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. So, so one thing that I think is when you when when you're when the the pathology or the way of thinking that that doesn't serve is sufficiently far away, it's easier to go back and pull out the the useful pieces, okay. and then you disaggregate. You can say, okay, you say postmodernism. What do you mean? I, here's a great insight from Foucault. Here's a great insight from Lacan. Here's a great insight from uh, from uh, you know uh, Bouillard or you know um, or or, or uh, uh, Derrida, right? And but when, when you're, when you're, when you're seeing the, or, or you've just moved past it yourself, yeah, right? You look at it more as a system, right? So for me, postmodernism is, is what I see as the aggregate behavior of people who are sure. at that mindset and it looks really unsustainable. Does that make sense? I think
1: it does. And I mean, I don't, I mean, how, how do I, I, uh, I want to try to be fair to it. I think that's what point. the points you made were excellent, um, and I I do agree that there is that aggregate behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it is as 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 prominent um, um, as you know as Jordan made it out to be, uh, um, uh, especially in the psych department. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, that that's kind of you know. Um, I'm sort of saying yes, but a little bit no. um, yeah. well, right. I think so. And I, and I wanted to say, you know, I when I talked about the branches of the tree, like this all starts in Heidegger, right? It all, you know, you know, Foucault and Derrida are deep, and, and, and deconstruction is, you know, it's a child of Heidegger's notion of destruction, right? Uh, all that stuff. And, you know, Heidegger is like, you know, Marcel Ponty and all that whole. Heider is the godfather of 4E cognitive science. so I see all this powerful benefit to breaking the Cartesian grip, death grip on understanding the mind and the world. And so I see this, you know, much more, I came up, you know, that that way. And so this, I I have a much more, I see a a huge aggregate that has this huge positive value. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I've had this debate with a lot of my friends about postmodernism where, you know, like people will say Peterson himself is a postmodernist because he's, you know, he he he's not an analytical ph- uh, philosopher like, you know, uh, he he's right? post Heideggerian, right? Right? He's he's within that continental philosophy tradition. So a lot of people who who, it, it, you know, I'm nowhere near as sophisticated in my reading of, of philosophy as you are, obviously, but. What it looks like to me is that for a lot of people, it's hard to disaggregate like the critique of pure rationality, yeah. into Heidegger, and that whole continental tradition from the specific outlet of, of, uh, of, of of postmodernism. Right. So you, it's like you uh-huh. have analytical philosophy and like, you know, just pure scientific epistemology without dealing with the critique of rationalism on one side, and that's uh-huh. like Steven Pinker, um, and then. Peterson's obviously not there. No, exactly. Right? Very much. He's on. He's on. He's a branch of the chain that comes from from Heidegger and, and Hegel and, and Nietzsche, and yeah. then and then that's closer to the postmodernists than it is to the Pinkers. Very much so. Or and, you know,
1: yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. That's, I think what you're saying. I'm in complete with what yeah. you're saying. And, and so I'm often. I'm often. I have a difficulty. Understanding Jordan's um, deep, almost reverence for Nietzsche, right? Uh, so, it, 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 so I, I, it, it, that putting that all together, uh, uh, the way you've done though is, is, is helpful. It's very helpful. Thank you. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> I'm 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 happy to. I'm happy if it's helpful. It's kind of crazy for me because I'm you know I'm just I'm, I'm sampling these things through you through Jordan, right? Um,
1: but 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 maybe that and not to dismiss any of your excellencies or cognitive abilities but maybe also your position as being you know closely closely outside gives Mm -hmm. you a kind of insight that i can't have i mean that's, that's that's a very real possibility
0: yeah well if it's useful that's wonderful um so i wanted to to just root back i mean i feel like we should uh should kind of come to an end here. This has been yeah. a good conversation, but I want to root back to this idea of the uh, of the two of the two fathers and recovering the bones of the fathers, because right. in some sense, like, you know, the lean the mean green meme of of Ken Wilber, right? That's postmodernism, and it's also the counterculture, right? Right. They're interrelated. Right. There's postmodernism as a philosophical movement, and then there's the, all the things that brought the counterculture out, and those are not just that. Yeah. yeah. Counterculture existed, and and I was the child of it. And the counterculture, you know, like um one of the books that has an immense amount of impact on so many people who come towards my work is is Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You read that book? Yes, I have. Okay, so The West is the takers, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a book that's profoundly anti-Western. And yes, love.
1: very much so.
0: And um, and that's that's kind of the attitude of the counterculture, but it's also a book that that calls to a renewal of the relationship with nature, an understanding of that that spirituality and recovering of the sacred that yeah. somehow got lost through a kindness and the supernatural well, That's why. natural.
1: That's what, is it Gorilla? I can't remember his name, is Ishmael. Yes,
0: Ishmael, yeah.
1: Ishmael is the other, right? There's Israel, right, or, or was it Isaac, right? And there's Ishmael, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and is also the main character. Well, we don't know if that's his name, he, but in Moby Dick, he has to be called Ishmael, right? And so, you, yeah, the meaning crisis is lumbering around that book, resonating in, in, a, in a lot of powerful ways. And the fact that he's a talking gorilla is also, like, your, goes towards your point. It's like, <laughs> Nar, but it's Narnia again. Yeah, It's, it, it, it's, it's, the, it's the it's the talking animal that actually carries the wisdom.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things that you know that that what I'm wrestling with, I guess, is this idea that Peterson is helping me recover the bones of, of the culture, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then also, as a like, I'm a child of the counterculture, and there's there's positive bones to be grabbed there. Yeah.
1: yeah. And in yeah. some
0: sense, what you're saying is like it's hard for you to to accept all of Peterson's perspective because you see the bones of postmodernism that we have to recover to build the next thing i think so yes so we need a critique but we also need to move past that critique yes i agree totally
1: and and that critique of postmodernism has to be integrated and allied with the recovery of the bones of our own tradition yes very much
0: so we so so to go back to it it's like it's like the line, "The Witch in the Wardrobe" is the story, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we need Aslan and we need the talking trees and and the, and the badgers because we need <laughs> to hearing them, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and so we need this integration of 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 the wisdom of Christianity and and the Neoplatonism and the the scientific empirical West with with the animistic shamanistic and you know Eastern traditions. I think.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and, and that's why I want to do. I mean, after I'm done after Socrates. Uh, um, which is, you know, trying to critique that the three monos mm-hmm. and exemplify an alternative. That's why I want to do the God Beyond God because I think the Kyoto School. Uh, we need to pay attention to Nishida and Nishitani and Maso Abe because they're the people that are, are they, allow, they lay the foundation for the very project in all of the aspects we've talked about. That's why I keep recommending Religion and Nothingness is one of the great books that everybody has to read, okay. right? Um, um, and I, I had that excellent discussion with Jared Morningstar about Nishitani. I, I think the Kyoto School is really, really um, important for this project that you've just articulated.
0: Man, we gotta talk more. <laughs> um, I've I, I've been working on this, the, laying out the method that I showed you before on a deeper level about this idea that that within body practices, mindfulness practices, nature, and community there is there's necessary inter affordances of insight generation that that are cut off when we don't treat these things in as part of it right it's like for cognitive science you're a body that body is embedded in a universe right that body is extended in a network of community right and it has to be acted out and practiced in order to grow and and so it you know what i, I was writing about this and i was like we can't do this practice of philosophia, right? I don't think we can have it if we don't have a body that's part of oh, it. Well, of course, I mean, one of the things that's gonna come out in after Socrates
1: is we forget that you know there's the, there's the whole culture that's presupposed as, 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 as so apparent that it doesn't need to be discussed of the gymnasium, mm-hmm. right? The gymnastics is, is all, it's all it's all through uh the socratic dialogues in really important and powerful ways the, the bodywork is there it's just that it was so obvious to everybody because it was so like an even i think some of the dialogues even take place right yeah exactly exactly so i, I think that's the broad right yeah yeah the wrestler, he, the wrestler he's a wrestler right uh, and, and so i think there's that but i wanted to point out just before uh the first thing came up when you were you when you, when you laying down the four of, mm-hmm. of your method. I'm saying I'm thinking there you go, right?
0: There's a distributed symbol. Beautiful. There we go. There's a
1: distributed.
0: Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast, and through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things, and we look forward to talking to you next time.